0: Hello and welcome to the Farmer Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. Today, as we look back on 2022 and look ahead to 2023, I'm joined not by an outside guest, but by three members of the Farmer Forum editorial team, or rather, two members of the Farmer Forum editorial team and our boss and publisher, Paul Tuna, the founder of Farmer Forum. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Jonah. We've got Eloise McLennan, our deep dive editor. Hi, Eloise. Hi. And we've got Nicole Raleigh, who uh, you've heard on the podcast before, our web editor. Hello there. Uh, so thanks for joining me, everybody. Uh, it's it's certainly been a big year for uh, Farm Forum. Uh, three of the four of us. Well, Eloise, you started in in twenty twenty one, but just at the at the tail end. Um. It's also been a, a big year for pharma in a lot of different ways. Um, so on this podcast, we're going to pick out just a few of the trends that have stood out for us uh, this year. And then at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about what we expect to see in 2023. So we've I've asked all the editors to bring a topic or two that they're comfortable kicking off uh, the discussion of. And uh, I will uh, lead off myself uh, so that nobody else has to. Uh, the thing that's really fascinated me this year has been everything that's been happening in in clinical trials. Um, and what's been interesting and exciting to me has been the kind of confluence of different trends. Uh, so the decentralization of clinical trials started like way back in 2012 with Craig Lipset and the Pfizer remote trial. Uh, ever since then, people have been doing work to try to get them off the ground, to build the technology set to get people comfortable running trials uh, in a decentralized way. But of course, what it actually took to start gaining large-scale traction of that was COVID-19 and the decentralization of everything. Um, But most of you remember that during the same time that COVID-19 was happening, um, there was also a huge sort of social upheaval and reckoning around race, um, particularly in the United States. Uh, And that prompted a conversation in pharma about uh, clinical trial diversity and the fact that for years and years, our trials have not represented the populations uh, that they're meant to develop treatments for. Um, So we have these two uh, separate confluencing trends of of decentralized trials and trial diversification. Um, Huge... Uh, focus on this from pharma. A huge growth of companies focused on enabling these two things, and then just a really interesting question of what's the interplay? How does decentralization support diversification? How can it limit it? Um, and and so that's been just fascinating to watch. And and that's kind of my intro. But what do you guys think about that one? Have I have I described it well? Do you have any corrections? <laughs>
1: uh, I don't think I have a, a correction for that. I I think I have more of an addition. Because I think specifically in the terms of diversification in clinical trial participants, we've had quite a big push towards women in clinical trials at the same time as getting different ethnicities and different backgrounds into clinical trials as well. And both of those two movements have really developed in parallel. And they've strengthened that argument towards why are we conducting trials in this one rigid way. When we have so many more resources and professionals who are capable of running these trials at different sites, it doesn't have to be in a hospital setting. In fact, sometimes it is actually more inappropriate to be in a hospital setting because you're using resources, you're spending money on 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 having rooms available, on having staff available, when, say, a, a primary or secondary site could also run this trial in a way that is closer to the people who would most likely benefit from that. So you're talking about people who may struggle to get to hospitals. It's not easy for everybody to get into transport that will take them all the way there. You might not have the funding. You might not be able to get time off work. You may have uh, people that you need to care for who you just can't drop two hours a day to go and get a checkup in a hospital, but you might be able to get down the road to your, your GP. And that opens up the trial space to so many more people who wouldn't necessarily have access to it and it really opens up the science i think because we've seen in in studies with with women we've seen in studies with with black patients we've seen in studies with asian patients that not every single person has a the same reaction to a disease to a treatment and we should be looking to see how we can best target Um, people's conditions in a way that's going to benefit them and ultimately make the industry perform better and save us money in the long run. Because if you're just pushing out a blanket, one size fits all treatment, having only tested it on one subsection of that population, then you're ultimately doing yourself a disservice because it's not going to be treating the rest of the population. And so you're almost, uh, yeah, you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice. And I think that so many people have so much to contribute. Why would you want to limit yourself in that way?
0: It's interesting that almost the th- the thing that brings these two trends together is the notion that clinical trials can be more like the real world and the real experience of, of people with the disease, right? So you can have a, your population can be more representative, but also with a decentralized trial, like you mentioned, Eloise, not going to the hospital, you actually can monitor better what people's life looks like every day instead of just... When they show up to their doctor, which is not representative.
1: Oh, absolutely! And we've seen so much of of real world evidence coming into trials over the past year and 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 slightly into last year as well, of that disconnect between the clinical setting and the home setting. So we know that the majority of patients' time is spent outside of, of hospitals, outside of time with their clinicians, but their symptoms don't stop the moment that they leave that that setting. They continue and they change over time and that information is is vital to the the practitioner who is treating them because you can only make decisions based on the information that you have at hand if you are not able to access 90% of the that person's information about how their symptoms change when they're at home when they're the most severe if you're only looking at what's in front of you within a snapshot of time then you you don't have the necessary information to make the most informed decision for that patient. So I think having that, opening that up to patients across the board, as to as many people as possible, it, it gives doctors, it gives practitioners and nurses better information, more comprehensive information to make decisions that will ultimately benefit patients.
2: Yeah, just to maybe build on those Points as a great point, Eloise. I mean, we we all know that clinical trials are not representative of the real world populations, and I think in some ways they never will be. So, you know, we know across the board that clinical trial populations tend to be younger than the real world populations. They tend to have far fewer comorbidities because those will be exclusion criteria for the trial. I don't see that necessarily changing. But then I think if we look at some of the other factors, particularly around diversity, um. You think about physical trials and going to hospital locations, I remember speaking to somebody who told me, and I believe this is true, one of the biggest factors of people dropping out of trials in the US was what they had to pay for parking at the hospitals, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, but that's a reality, that's a factor. So I think this sort of decentralisation does have enormous potential to address some of those factors, increase that diversity, especially that kind of socioeconomic diversity, but also to the point about, you know, people of different sort of um, origins, we know that those genetics impact the results. And I think the risk, and we've seen this in trials historically, is you end up with an average result that says this drug isn't doing very much, whereas it might be in, for example, an Asian population, it has a stellar effect and it shows a statistically significant result. So there's a lot to kind of unpack here. I guess the final thought I would add on this is you know we're all fans of digital we think digital and digital tools and digital engagement can help increase that diversity we do need to be careful we're not biasing trials towards the more digital savvy and including another form of bias as well
0: yeah and one way that that's happening is is by working with um sort of n- not just the home but non-traditional trial sites so going to clinics and and uh and care providers in traditionally overlooked and underserved communities, and finding ways to build networks that include them, so that you can pull people into the trial uh, and and give them access to the digital tools without them necessarily having to be kind of fully online and connected. I did just want to add one more thing to your point, Paul, um, which is you know there, I was, there's almost three ways that. You know, di- diversity can affect the trials, right? There's the actual genetics of, of different people respond differently to things. There's the social determinants of health, which is huge. People who have access to different things in their life, different food, different, uh, you know, amenities, different environments. They, they'll respond differently to treatments. And then there's the biomarkers of, of how we measure uh, how people are responding and whether those biomarkers work differently on different populations, and there was a lot in the news the last couple of years about how um, sensors that are are skin based, like uh, like sensors that do uh, blood pressure monitoring using photo plus plus thermography or whatever, um, you know, don't work as well on darker skin, and and that's been a huge issue um, that it's taken a, the tech world a long time to approach. And Eloise, you've got another one.
1: Uh, I do indeed. Um, I think speaking on that point that research has really come out through more diverse teams within the clinical setting. And it's all well and good saying we want to ensure that we have a greater diverse population amongst the patients in clinical trials, but that has to stem from having as many people at the table who represent those backgrounds, who know what it's like, and who can contribute those stories to the decision-making process and to the planning stage, because if you have uh, an entire panel of 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 researchers who are only the same skin tone, then you don't know that another skin tone might not be able to to show might not show the same symptoms. You might not be able to recognize it in the same way. So, I think a real starting point for identifying and adapting to those concerns is to make sure that you are actively pursuing, building the most diverse and representative teams that you can with the people who are going to bring the best possible knowledge to those roles.
3: Exactly. You can't be seeking real-world data, real-world experience, unless you have a real-world team. Um, You know, it's from the ground up. You have to look at both ends of the whole process, from research to patient and Essentially, with the team seeking the answers, if that team itself is not diverse, then you're not going to end up with diversity.
0: So there's a ton more we could say on this subject. We haven't even talked about some of the other trends in clinical trials, like uh, like synthetic trials and, and AI and machine learning. But if we spend this long on every topic, it's going to be a two hour podcast. So uh, I want to kick it over to Eloise. You had one more clinical trial related topic, or if you feel like we've, we've covered that then um you can move on to one of your other ones
1: i actually think the uh, the topic of of clinical trials leads quite well into my topic because my topic i don't think you could look at 2020 as a year and i think 2021 as well and not think about patient centricity it has been the biggest talking point in every single conference we've gone to every interview that we've done the words patient centricity patient focused have been the biggest talking points. And it's especially prevalent in clinical trial space because that's where we know patients have already contributed. That's nowhere that's where we know they make valuable contributions. But looking at at the, the conversations I've had with researchers over the past 12 months, I think that. There is far more that we can do to involve patients and put them at the heart of research that goes beyond planning clinical trial uh processes, beyond planning outcomes and contributing data. Um, thinking of I, I spoke to, I believe it was Envision, uh for deep dive only a few issues ago. Uh, and I was talking to Dr. Dawn Loban and Catherine Botterley about the role that patients can play in as authors. So in patient authored clinical trial research, so the publications themselves, where it's not necessarily as well known that patients can play a big role, but they have a lot that they can contribute to keep that research and keep those publications really focused on the unmet needs, on what the patients need from that outcome. And I think those... Areas where we might not necessarily think that patients could play a role are really key to to explore. Um, and, and to find where those little pockets of greatness can can be applied to benefit the wider patient population. Because these are the people who spend all of the time with their conditions, with their symptoms. They know the what is happening to them inside and out. So it seems like a very reasonable way to build and progress what we're already doing is to go to these these people and say okay what's happening to you how is this benefiting you are these processes difficult for you to follow are is there anything that we can be doing to improve our service for you so that you can provide us with the information that we need to conduct, to conduct our, our roles that doesn't add to the burden that you are already experiencing living with the symptoms that you have and i think that's that's been a key element is ensuring that we are not adding burden where it should not be and i think looking at what we've just discussed with with clinical trials uh, as paul said the idea of paying for parking it's something that you might not necessarily think about but it it has a real impact on whether or not patients engage. So looking at whether or not a service is user-friendly, we've just spoken about patients who may not be as tech savvy. Are you creating unnecessary barriers by trying to implement a patient-focused strategy that hasn't included the patients in really early stages of development? That's such a, a critical point where it can make or break whether or not your piece is successful. And that I think is particularly important as we extend more research opportunities and clinical trial opportunities to patients, because you want to make sure that the data that you're getting is accurate for a start, but also that they are motivated to engage with us and engage with what we're doing. And it's not a burden or just, oh, I have to do this other thing because I'm constantly reminded that I have this condition and I think that just talking to patients it seems like such a simple starting point but just talking to patients finding out what their needs are on a daily basis and making sure that what you are creating benefits them in a way that will ensure that they engage with and use what you're doing instead of creating something that you think will work but ultimately falls flat because that it just isn't the way that anybody who lives that life would be able to engage with something
2: to sort of pick up on that patient centricity is a is a massive massive topic and i i sometimes worry it's becoming one of those kind of buzzwords that people sort of go oh, we've ticked the box we've we've spoken to a patient we're doing patient centricity the reality is companies are at all kinds of different stages um for example, I mean, to pick one, I love the work that Estellus is doing. And if people um have listened to the Fireside Chatter did with Anthony Yanni, I think they're really bringing it into and across the business. But I think looking at the trial side specifically, um, as Eloise mentioned, I mean, companies are increasingly looking to get some patient input into the design of the trials, again, to make sure they're more reflective of the real world. Where I think there's still a long way to go is on that communication of trial outcomes. I, I hear very often patients saying, or, or people saying they've been in trials, they've heard nothing more about the outcome of the trial and what's happened. And if you think about, you know, the way we tend to engage and the way we tend to do things, it's because one of our peers or one of our friends has said, this is really good, you should give it a go. Now, yeah, we operate in a very regulated environment. I'm not saying mass patients should go out and start selling drugs, but if you can find a way to get patients to support communication of trial results in a way that is understandable is plain English I think there's something there it's not easy I get but there's something that I think we can focus on more
1: I think that's an absolutely fantastic point is the the idea of almost translating jargon for the layman because the majority of patients they look if you looked from an outside perspective at a research paper it's it's data it's numbers but Unless you have that research background, unless you know what all of that data means, it's, it's like you say, trying to read a completely different language. So having somebody, possibly a patient, possibly patient organizations, a patient representative, who can help to translate that for the wider patient groups, because those are the people who spend a lot of time reading about What's happening to them? What's the next study that's coming up? Is there anything that I could possibly be researching to help those people understand and convey that we are doing what we're what we saying we're doing? There is a lot of movement in the background. It may not be the biggest development that's going to completely change the game, but there are small little little achievements throughout the way. If we can convey that in a way that the, the layman can understand, it's a it will make a huge difference, I think.
2: And I'm really intrigued, just briefly on that point, I'm really intrigued to see next year, as, as a lot of the big congresses come back, where they land on this, because pre-COVID, at least some of the bigger medical conferences were trying to bring patient sessions and patients into the room. And then they'd hit some of the challenges of pharma companies going, well, we can't talk about our data now because we've got patients in the room. So we never really solved that problem. But as conferences come back, I really want to see where that goes in twenty twenty
0: three. So, um <laughs> what should we do next? Uh, um Paul, uh do you wanna do one yeah, of your trends? I can I can I mean
2: maybe to, to pick up on that point there, this kind of dare I say, post COVID world. I need to touch wood at this point. Hopefully post COVID world. It does feel like certainly in the second half of this year, and I'm not saying COVID's gone away. I know it hasn't. I know it's still a great threat for many people, particularly if you're immunocompromised, but it feels like life is starting to come back to more of a new normal. And I think next year we'll start to see what that means. What I find fascinating, and I think what we've seen this year, is COVID has driven digital more into health systems. We've spoken about the trials piece. But also you look at things like remote um, GP or doctor consultation. I've done that this year. Other people I know are embracing that. Some of these things I think are not going to go away. I think the challenge with that is, of course, COVID has left an enormous burden on all the health systems. Um, And speaking as someone in the UK, the NHS is particularly under pressure. People are overworked. They're underpaid. That's a whole separate topic. They're overworked. They haven't got time. So trying to bring new stuff in is really hard. And I think some of the digital stuff will immediately stick where it drives efficiencies. I think some of the stuff, and I'm talking more about digital therapeutics, modern digital diagnostics it's pretty hard because you're trying to add something new or change a process in a heavily, heavily stressed system.
1: Uh, I think to, to that point, Paul, um, we've seen in 2021 a huge surge of investment in digital health and digital health services. And that has really been an outlier for for venture capital within healthcare. It was a real, almost flipped on its head service where you went from instead of people chasing capital, it was venture capitalists chasing to invest in digital health services. And now moving into 2023, it seems to be settling slightly where now we're seeing much more focus on investing in quality and making sure that those services are the right services to invest in rather than trying to jump on the bandwagon to make sure that you're on board. And that, I think, is going to be one of the driving factors of digital health next year will be those that do gain investment, I think, will be really big, game-changing areas. I
0: think that's a pretty rosy colored glasses reading of the investment situation in digital health
1: what can i say i'm a positive person jonah i can't help it i was
2: gonna say settling is a very sort of british understatement word i think it's been a a bit of an investment bloodbath not just for digital health but for biotech this year if if we're very honest and i mean look at the share prices as well not just investment look at the share prices some of the big companies like teledoc for example but what i do think is true is we had a bit of a bubble before there's been a bit of a correction And to your point, Eloise, you know, it's really sharpening the focus on things that kind of tick the boxes that medicines have always done, which is, does it drive a result? Does it drive value for the healthcare systems? If you haven't got the data to show those two things, you're going to be in trouble.
0: Yeah. I don't even know if I'd call it a a bubble so much as just a correction because one, the whole economy took a hit. And so that obviously affected people's willingness to invest in things, but also, uh, yeah, I think during COVID, the early moments of COVID, there's kind of a gold rush. Oh, wow, everything's changing. Let me get in on anything that, you know, could could benefit. And obviously, some models and and business models were more thought out than others. So I tend to be a little bit optimistic also, I guess, in terms of, the you know, the leveling off of the funding is, is pretty well to be expected for a lot of reasons and doesn't really necessarily mean oh, we're not going to be making a shift to digital after all.
2: It certainly made startup leaders ask that very tough question of, do you genuinely have a problem to a solution or do you have a solution seeking a problem?
1: Yeah, it always brings me back to, um, Paul always talks about digital health and digital health investment as it's not always that bright, shiny new thing that is going to be the best choice for healthcare. It's looking beneath that shiny surface to find the substance now. We've had two years of people going, oh my goodness, we're getting a load of digital health technology. So now people understand it a little bit better. We have more information about what health systems can support, what resources are needed, um, where is the best application of this of this new tool? And now we can, as we said, settle into it and learn from The past two years. And now I think harness it and finesse what we have learned, what we have in place now, and use that as a foundation to build a better system that is more streamlined, that allows practitioners, nurses to perform their tasks as effectively as possible without creating, as you said, Paul, extra barriers. If you have to fill in three extra forms. On a digital service where you had to fill in one form handwritten, even if nobody could read it, that was obviously going to be the preferred system. Because to, to change and adopt a more digital system, you have to ensure that the behavior will also change and that you're not creating undue barriers uh, in the name of progress.
3: Exactly. Efficacy of implementation and quality versus quantity. And I think this actually this hopping on the bandwagon transfers to AI being used. Um, there was a lot of talk across multiple conferences this year about how it's a buzz term, but actually, what does it really better? Is it quantifiable, that betterment? And we have to be careful that we're not just sort of buying into the concept of a, what turns out to be a myth, that sort of ethos
2: great, great point. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a few years ago, a lot of talk about, and I won't name companies, but certain companies saying how AI is going to transform oncology care or whatever it might be. And the, and there wasn't the substance behind the talk to actually deliver on that.
0: Well, I think people underestimate the complexity of it uh, because there's so many steps between, you know, having a big data set and actually benefiting from AI and machine learning. You have to harmonize that data set you have to annotate that data set you have to build the models or modify the models and and there's a lot of things that can go wrong every step of the way data is really complicated every it's a big bandwagon right now but it's not easy to get to the point where it's actually um accruing benefits for you but yeah. very very valuable when you do get there that's why i think we see uh, jumping over to drug discovery um, we're not seeing a lot of pharmas building their own AI drug discovery operations. We're seeing them embark on multi-million, if not multi-billion dollar partnerships with tech companies dedicated exclusively to using AI for drug discovery and saying, hey, we're going to pay you this much money for this many targets and we'll pay you this much money if some of those targets turn into blockbuster drugs. So there's really a need for cooperation between the tech ecosystem and the farming ecosystem because these technologies are not easy.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's one area that we've started to see progress a little bit over the past year is the idea that somehow over the past 100, 200 years of medicine, we have come to a place where we've ended up with quite a few silos between different departments, between different organizations, where it's incredibly difficult to share information and to work together in that collaborative sense, but with digital, you can't because there's no way that you, as a newcomer to digital and data analytics, can be as advanced as a company that is dedicated to doing that. You don't. No one has the resources, the funding, or the time to to dedicate a twenty year process into a year of trying to understand this, as you said, Jonah, something that is incredibly complex. So, taking the leap to extend a hand to partners and in a new way where you're working collaboratively and not just, okay, we are two blocks next to each other. It has to be, we are combined and working together on this. I think.
2: Yeah, I I mean, sorry, Eloise, gone.
1: No, no, no. I ended with, I think.
2: I, I, <laughs> no, I know. I was going to agree with you. I think it, this talk about collaboration is a very positive thing because I think. When you talk about things like AI, and we've seen this in a number of settings, it can very easily become a polarized black and white conversation of is AI going to replace sales reps, doctors, scientists, etc.? And the reality is, a skilled individual, whether it's a doctor, a researcher, etc., plus AI, is better typically than that skilled individual alone or AI alone. That's very true at that individual level, but it's also true at the corporate level. So this collaboration between the tech companies and the and the biopharma companies. And the conversation moving more around how can we work together, rather than 10 years ago, if big tech can replace pharma, I think is incredibly healthy.
0: So, Nicole, you got us into the AI conversation, but I I did want to officially let you uh, broach a topic too. Um, And I know we haven't really talked about any kind of hard pharma stuff. We haven't talked about molecules or immunotherapies or anything like that. So I wanted to know if you had anything for us along those lines.
3: I do. So i Not being a scientist, I won't go too deeply into the molecular level, but obviously in the oncology space, there has been a lot of innovation. And the caveat with that, it seems, has been, is it commercially viable All this innovation and is it accessible? So whereas you've got immunotherapies, uh, the advancements there like biospecifics, which is your molecular level, um, alongside more precision medicine of CAR T cell therapy, And then there's even talk in the future of tri-specifics. I was talking with someone the other day, which sounds fascinating. At the same time, it's, you know, what's the quality? Again, it returns to this word of quality. How effective is it and can it be implemented at scale? So it's scale, commercial viability and access, equitability, basically.
0: Yeah. One thing that's been really interesting to me is looking at all these new avenues of, of precision medicine, uh, by which I mean, you know, really innovative treatments that only target a rare disease or a, a cancer, but only uh, people who have that cancer expressed on a certain gene in a certain way. It's really changed the whole pharma landscape um, in when it comes to these new treatments away from a focus on like blockbusters and what can we do to make the most money from the largest patient population to like, how can we build a business model built around the new reality of, of drugs that are highly targeted um, and, you know, and still have the economies of, of scale on those work out?
3: Yeah, you looked like you wanted to come in, Eloise. That's why I was pausing.
1: I always want to. I always want to. You always, always want, to. want to. I always <laughs> want to make <laughs> well, my point. Very valid things to say, so go for it. Okay, okay. Uh, well, I was going to speak to to your point there, Nicole, and to, to yours as well, Jonah, is the the move towards precision medicine is a really really ambitious goal if you think about how many people are living with conditions around the world how many people are going to be diagnosed with conditions around the world that accessibility is a huge huge um, challenge that we're going to have to overcome in order to deliver this service but I think it does come back to how researchers how the industry can use technology in a way that as Paul says it doesn't reduce the need for for feet on the ground for those really knowledgeable individuals who can pick out that little that the diamond in the rough of insight that is going to transform the life of of one patient. It gives them the tools that they need to to deliver that service. We've we've seen throughout the year so many interviewers who have said we would love to be doing research into rare diseases but we just don't have the patient cohorts. We can't access those 100 people out of seven 7 million who may be looked at in that population. There are 100 people that have that disease. They are nowhere near each other. They don't seem to have anything in common. Um. So how can we address this? But with digital, with those those communications channels that we've now opened... There is opportunity to to do that. I think that what Nicole is saying is really important. It's the scalability of that, and I think also to that point, it's how long is this going to take? That's always whenever I see those those big statement ideas of precision medicine of of AI being used in in healthcare. How how long is this going to take, and can it benefit patients now in the short term as well? Because I think that's also really important when we're looking at at any scientific developments is it's very very ambitious to look ahead but we also need to be looking at how can these little uh, innovations be used to benefit patients now and I think that's something that we're definitely seeing in the UK through the genomics labs we now have these very very complex very advanced systems in place but we are seeing them being used now on a smaller scale. With a real clear roadmap on how these can be scaled out at a later date.
0: Yeah, that. And I that think you go first, Paul, then I'll go. No, I
2: was just going to pick up on it. I love the way um, Nicole phrased it around scalability, accessibility. I mean, these are complex discussions. And I i think the reality is when you look at novel therapies coming through, and CAR T is a really good example. I mean, we're we're seeing more and more. Results from trials in cancer, for example, with things like CAR and other novel approaches where you talk about patients going into complete remission. Now, we always temper our excitement because it's normally a small number of patients in a specific indication, but these are in some cases potentially for certain cancer's curative therapies. The reality is that stuff is going to be expensive to begin with, and we have to find a balance between paying enough that we support that innovation and getting that into the market. That encourages more players to come in and com- a competitive environment, with ensuring patients can access it. Because the reality is, the only way to get that kind of stuff at a much lower cost is to have lots of people competing and accelerating progress. Look at things like genomic sequencing. When we were all talking about, will it ever get below a thousand dollars for genomic sequencing? And it's whatever it is now, twenty or 30, 30 bucks, as the Americans would say. That's the balance we're taking. How do we get it in, into the hands of patients now, but not cut off the future investment, the future innovation?
0: So I'll say two things, because so, I want to respond to what he said there, Paul. Um, the, when it comes to like things like cell and gene therapies that are potentially curative, the whole cost structures that we've built up in pharma are built up around the assumption that a person who's being treated for cancer is going to be treated for the rest of their life. Um, and so as we're trying to figure out how to cost these therapies uh, so that they make back the money it costs to develop them, they, they become very expensive, but not just very expensive. Also, insurers have to pay for them in ways they're not accustomed to. Um, and so there's a whole question about as more cell and gene therapies get approved, which they're supposed to be like a lot more. There were like, I think, three this year or like ever. And now there's they're saying by 2025 there might be. 10 a year or something. I probably have those numbers wrong, but that's the sort of explosion this, this field is headed for. And there's a lot of questions about the business models. But the other thing I wanted to say is is that what's cool about this, the way that de- development is sort of exploding in, in oncology and, and other areas too, is it's created an opportunity for smaller pharmas in In almost any industry these days, the trend is towards consolidation, towards big juggernauts that can afford to sort of price everyone out with economies of scale. But in pharma, obviously the big juggernauts are doing fine. But, uh, you know, these treatments with small groups of patients and, and very specific kind of tracks for development, they lend themselves to these biotech startups that can come and be very focused on one project that a pharma, a big pharma company might not find to be worth their while. Uh, they can bet big on it. And then if it goes well, they can hand it off to the pharma companies for commercialization, or they can try to build themselves into something. So there's a whole ecosystem that sort of emerged around the uniqueness of these technologies and how they're being developed.
1: Yeah. And that's quite a, a new phenomenon. I think that the idea of of licensing out a molecule that you were not aware that it could have been this huge thing had you had the resources into it, or perhaps you did know. And it's a really fine balance um, with those smaller biotechs going to larger pharma companies to say, trust us to to research this. And if we come back to it and it it becomes something, then we can develop it and it can become something that benefits lots of people. Instead of something that scares those pharma companies into going, Oh no, this might be valuable, so we'll keep on to this just in case it is a really fine line to walk and it's been really, really encouraging to see big pharma companies, small biotechs actually find those those moments of those areas where they can collaborate and to, to it's a risk it is a risk for both companies, and it's really, really encouraging to see both be willing to enter that risk and to work together on something that may have otherwise just fallen aside but it could be that one treatment that somebody really needs or it could be that one treatment that that progresses into something that changes the way that you're going in some sort of research capacity it's it's finding those little areas of partnership and being willing to pursue them I think and I think that's been something quite quite groundbreaking at least from my perspective this year is is how many are willing to to pursue that because it's a completely different way of thinking
2: it also i think links back to to where we started with this conversation because it is risky i mean hats off to anybody who works in in biotech and small biotech you you're gambling on potentially even one asset one or two assets and those going in the right direction but I think we, as we talked about you know, the transformation of trials and how digital transformation is coming through, it does make it more accessible in a sense of what I see emerging is new options for biotechs. It's not necessarily just we out to a pharma company. There are other partners coming in that are saying, look, we're not a pharma company, but we can work with you all the way through and take this to market together. And there's a number of those players coming out. So I think it's, it's an environment which is quite... Um, despite the funding situation being hard, I think it's quite fertile for biotechs at the moment in terms of their path to market.
0: All right. So we are going to have to wrap this up soon. Paul and I have to run off to a a meeting, um, which I'm hoping we can be a little late for. Uh, I'd like to just do a round, Robin, and uh, for everyone to give me a prediction for next year. It can be uh, as vague or as specific as you like. So you could say, we'll see a little more of this, a little less of that. Or you can say, You know this this particular thing will happen um feel free to try to focus on an area we haven't touched on yet or um circle back to something we have uh so i can go first give people a little time to think (laughs) we haven't talked about digital therapeutics yet and we meant to uh that was one of our topics um so i i will just say you know that that space seems poised right now to um, to make a big transition I mean even this year we've seen I think digital therapeutics become kind of business as usual in a way they haven't been before the, the um the, a lot of the big questions are proven out um but now the the big questions that remain are around regulation so i I think we're we're set to see some of the big regulatory bodies make some rulings about digital therapeutics provide some clarity um hopefully then other regulatory bodies will follow suit and then we'll see, I hope, a lot of growth in that space in 2023 and
1: 2024. I'll go next. Uh, there's another one that we were we were going to talk through today, but as always, we are so full of opinions. <laughs> we always end up going over. Uh, but my one would be a continuation of omni-channel uh, engagement um, and I think a maturing of omni-channel engagement because we've had a very, very big explosion of interest in in bringing content to the consumer but i think that it's now going to move towards how do we optimize those those channels to make sure that we're delivering content as and where it is most appropriate to ensure that we're delivering the correct information in the correct format to the correct person in order to to make the biggest impact that we can and i think that that's that's going to be a real challenge for for companies next year
3: yeah i think on this word challenge as much as i'm an optimist there tends to be a lot of talk about doing things so ideally in an idealistic fashion in 2023 there should be action on these keywords of collaboration and of data sharing has been a big one sharing the knowledge that everyone's sort of collating and i think if that is uh put into effect, then perhaps these sort of more niche research areas like rare diseases uh, will see a lot more progress.
0: Take us on Bob.
2: And I would probably bring it back to the digital health piece. And I'm I'm gonna be a little bit nondescript in my prediction, but I, I, I think digital health for me is really becoming mainstream. And there's a few indicators that say that to me. You know, you you've got many more big pharma companies integrating digital health into their commercial brand plans i saw my first tv advert here in the uk for a digital diagnostic recently one of the remote ecg devices i've never seen that on mainstream tv before but i think you know if you follow that trend i think we will see next year a really high profile drug and digital health combination prescription therapy Hitting the headlines. So, I'm not going to put a revenue number against it or name a company. There's been small forays into this space, but I think there'll be something that really hits the headlines in that space of, you know, drug plus companion diagnostic.
0: Well, thank you all. This has been really fun. I hope this is the first uh, of an annual tradition for us. Um, And, And then we'll be able to do more podcasts like this throughout the year as well, um, focusing on particular topics. Thank you all for reading the publication, for checking out the Deep Dive, for listening to the podcast. Uh, We obviously couldn't do what we do without our our audience. Um, And it's just been our pleasure to serve you guys and and, uh, chronicle this really, really exciting, dynamic, changing industry in 2022. And we'll see you next year. concludes this episode of the pharma forum podcast you can find more information about this episode including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast the pharma forum podcast is also available on itunes spotify acast stitcher and podme where you can find and subscribe by searching for pharma forum and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on twitter at at pharma forum thanks for listening